How are we doing today? Good, awesome. Two of you answered. Well, hey, it is a good day to be together. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to gather and open the word and to hear what God would have for us. Um, this morning, we're looking at a passage of scripture that might hit very close to home for some of you. So uh, I've been praying this week that, that God's word would be uh, effective in our hearts and that we would be open to receive it. There was a New Jersey newspaper that ran a, a little ad that was taken out by uh, a woman, a mom, in, in the one ad section, and it read this. Honey, please come home. The children miss you. The lawn hasn't been mowed in three weeks. And the garden needs a worm like you. <laughs> and it was signed, your loving wife, Gretchen. I have a hunch that that ad that was taken out that was expressing some of the issues that may exist in that marriage, that the, peop- the person that wrote the ad had those issues long before she ever paid any money for it to be printed. And I have a hunch that her husband was already passive and that she was already full-blown, in charge, long before any blow-up happened. Christian counselor Paul Tripp has accurately observed that marriage will magnify the personality you already have. That marriage will magnify the personality you already have. If you're kind, it'll show in your marriage. If you're unruly, it'll show in your marriage. If you're a fighter or a pushover, it will show in your marriage. Marriage is the testing grounds for the personalities that we have and magnifies them as we are joined together. Now, I bring that up not to knock marriage. I'm married. I love being married. I love my wife. It's a wonderful gift that God has given us. But I also want to shine a light on the reality that often in our marriages, there are traits that we exhibit that are less than godly. It wasn't that marriage created those issues in us. They've already existed. They're just magnified. And I've heard it said sometimes by a spouse that will come in and talk to me and say, you know, pastor, this is not the person that I married. No, it is the person that you're married. When you were dating, they were lying to you to win your favor. But they are who they are. And this shows itself in this unique relationship because there's no other human relationship that one depends on another so much. And when our guard is down and the dating is over, we are who we are. Now, we've been walking through First Peter with the focus on being able to hold fast to our faith. 
We hold fast to our faith while we make our way home to heaven. And as we find our way through this world that is not our home, it's really a challenge because we live in a fallen world and it's pressing in all around us. And and Peter is saying, hold on to your faith, hold on to Jesus, because he is the only one that is going to be able to get you to the destination that he has prepared for you. We are constantly confronted with the darkness of sin. And Peter is awakening us to our holy calling, to be holy as God is holy, to be called in his likeness and to press on in maturity and to hold fast to our faith. And I would hope that even this far into our study in first Peter, that if this was the only text of scripture that you have ever read, that you have already been more awakened to the already not yet aspect of our Christian life. That we are, as children of God, beloved, cared for, and we have all that we need through what God provides. And yet there is more to come. The already not yet of our hope in Jesus Christ. And one of the primary ways we see this is our call to submit to people in situations that are far from ideal. And you might say that that's strange that that packaged in this holy calling in Christ likeness is that we are to submit. Because that that's not an easy word to apply. But Peter began with the big picture that we are called to submit to governing authorities and leaders even when they are not leading well and we disagree with their policies and their attitudes, we are called to submit. Then he zoomed in the lens a little closer to the work relationships that we have as a slave to a master. And we talked about in the first century world, it was as close to our modern day employer-employee relationship as we could get. It's not the slavery that we think of in in America in the 19th century and the 18th century. It was far from that. And then what Peter did was after providing those two examples, he said, let me show you the one who gives us the prime example of submission. And he took us to Jesus. And for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the life of Christ and, and what he went through to secure our salvation as the perfect one suffered on our behalf at the hands of sinful men. He took our place and he submitted to the will of the father and entrusted himself to God that God, the father knows best. That Jesus is our example of how to live a life of submission Peter added in that section uh, with masters and slaves that this short phrase that I think covers really every category of submission. He basically says, what good is there for suffering for doing something wrong? See, if we go through life and and we're fighting against the system, right? And, And we're causing all sorts of problems for ourselves by our attitudes and our actions, and we're unwilling to submit 
to the authorities above us. And we're, we're always fighting with the man, right? Because he's trying to push us down and not give us what we deserve. Like those kinds of things. What good is there for suffering for doing a wrong thing? Because submission comes with the cost of suffering. And so we are called to entrust ourselves to the will of the Father and follow the example of Jesus. And so just picture it, right? First example, governing authorities. Wide, was it macro view? Wide view? Then employer-employee relationships. And now today, the marriage relationship. We've gone from a national perspective to the home. And what Peter is doing is he's calling us to still consider what it means to be a people that can trust God in even difficult circumstances, even those that are close to home. So hear the word of God. First Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Just stop right there. Guys, don't elbow your wives at this point. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And because of the familiar relationship that we have to the subject matter that we're looking at, we need to pray and ask that God would open our hearts. So would you pray with me? God, help us in these moments to talk about some very personal and very... um, important and present things. This message, God, isn't just to the wives in our sanctuary. This message is for the families, the the couples that are together. And this this message is for the single person that is seeking to be married. And, 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 And God, I just pray that even as a congregation, this message would be for us in that we see the value and the beauty of the relationship that you have called a husband and wife to be, and that we would support that and affirm it as we walk with you. So open our hearts and teach us. May your spirit guide us along the way, that we would honor you and follow your word for your glory and our good. And we ask it through the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So before we unpack the text, we need to consider some things um, before we look at what Peter is writing, because I think it really helps us understand what Peter is saying 
And also more importantly, well, maybe not more importantly, but just as importantly, what he isn't saying. Because we approach passages like this with a uh, presumption of, oh, okay, well, he said these words, so this means this in every situation. And, and we often miss the background. We often miss the culture, uh, what's going on in, in the world that Peter is writing. And so the first thing we do want to consider is the culture that Peter is writing in the first century Roman world. See, in the first century Roman world, it was assumed that the wife would follow whatever religious inclinations that her husband had. It was, if you were married, if a a woman got married to a man in the Roman world, she basically would take on his religion. And we know the first century Roman world was full of all sorts of gods, lowercase g, to follow. And so she maybe came from a home and a background where they went to a certain temple at a certain time and, and gave their worship. But if she got married and and her husband went to another temple and and, and another lower G God and paid his worship to him, then she would take on his religious experience. The wife was expected to follow and she would never choose another religion. It was the household religion. So it seems as we read the text that the wives that Peter is writing to are those who came to faith in Jesus after they were married and their husbands were still not believers. And we see that in verse one with the phrase so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Now, what's interesting is that Peter uses that word disobedient in chapter 2, verse 8, to refer to those who are unbelievers. In chapter 2, verse 8, we read, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. And so these wives are in a marriage relationship where they love Jesus, and their husband does not. So these women are are in what the Bible refers to as an unequally yoked marriage. They are in the faith, but their husbands are not. And what is an unequally yoked marriage? Because that's not language that we use often. Well, the Bible uses it when a, a team of animals would be yoked together, pulling a cart, that when they're yoked together, they would take on the pace of the other. But if they're unequally yoked, one animal would be running at or walking at a different pace than the other, and the cart would go everywhere. And so what Peter is writing to, like slaves who are Christians, who work for masters who are not Christians, is primarily he's writing to an audience of women who are married to unbelieving spouses. And here's the thing about that kind of relationship where one's a believer and one isn't a believer. The scriptures never say to divorce the other person because the other one is not a Christian. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, 
Paul says, remain married so that by your faith, you would win them to a relationship with Jesus. Now, there's an important lesson for us to consider right now based on that cultural um, situation that these women were facing. And it's this. If you are single and you desire to be married, please take the time to know for sure that the person you seek to enter into the marriage covenant with first and foremost loves Jesus Christ. That should be your primary focus and goal. Not how attractive they are or how much you get along or you like all the same hobbies or you have fun together. Make sure they love Jesus Christ. You don't need a project. And there's no such thing as missionary dating. It doesn't work. In fact, marriage is meant, it's God's design, right? Marriage is God's design. It's not a worldly design. From the very beginning, God saw Adam was alone and said, you need to help me. And he created Eve to complete him. And it's his design. Marriage is meant to be a witness to the world. Of the love that Christ has for the church. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. That Christian marriages are a testimony to an unbelieving world. Of what it means for Christ to sacrificially love his bride, the church. So you don't need any projects. It's difficult because the spouse who doesn't know Jesus knows that the other has a greater love in their life than them. And they know that their priorities are different. And it leads to all sorts of challenges and problems. And often the believing spouse, and I say this Often, right? This isn't 100% all the time. But often, the believing spouse will struggle more than the one who isn't a believer. They will often have to make the compromises in the practice of their faith than the one who isn't a believer. So the first thing is the culture. And settled in your hearts right now, those who are single, that the number one thing you should look for in a person is that they love Jesus Christ. The second thing to consider is that while the emphasis seems to be on those who are in relationships where one believes and the other doesn't, that there are still lessons to learn for husbands and wives that both love Jesus in this text. Okay? So don't hear me say it's written to those who believe and have unbelieving husbands and think, well, you know, we're equally yoked. And then you check out for the next however long it takes me to get through this passage. Now, there are lessons to learn. Keep your hearts open. Passages like this in Ephesians 5 get a bad rap in our culture because there are some Christian men that say, see, here it is. You're to submit to me no matter what. In fact, there are some Christian men who approach this passage with such joy and gusto. Like, 
Okay, I've heard from some of you that you said, hey, this is it. This is the week. We're going to be in church. What time does it start? 930? We're going to be there at 745. I need my seat. Some of you with such gusto have memorized this passage in different translations and the original Greek because you're so excited about it. And many critics of the Bible will look and say, does it seem right? First Peter three verses one through six or six verses devoted to the wife and verse seven. The men only get one verse. It doesn't it's not fair. Husbands and wives, the word of God is equally sufficient for all of us. Peter's primary concern is for the wife who is a believer, who is living in a situation where her spouse isn't believing, and she needs more counsel. It's not that she doesn't get it. She needs more encouragement to stay faithful to the Lord and be a witness. And that's why Peter takes six verses and explains the, the relationship that she is to have. It's not that the men get it and the women don't. And on top of that, men, if you have been nudging your wife all morning long, we should talk. And you should pray. And you should die to that. And be humble. And lean in. Because the things that Peter says in verses 1 through 6 are things that you should be praying are true about the woman that you love and are committed to. And you should be affirming these things in her life. Not just saying, well, the Bible says... The third thing that we want to consider is the way that the scriptures reveal the dynamics of the relationship that the husband and wife have. Yes, the wife is to submit, but submission doesn't mean being a doormat. We've been hammering that home the last few weeks, especially through the example of Christ. When we approach the scriptures and the roles that God has ordained for husband and wife, we look at it as each has their distinct roles and functions. When the the scriptures talk about what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife and what it means to be married, each one has a role and function. They complement one another. They dovetail each other. This is what is referred to as the complementary view of husband and wife. It follows the example of 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. That if you could just picture with me these umbrellas, right? The man has an umbrella over his wife. Christ is over the man and God the Father is over Christ. And the the umbrellas get bigger. And there's safety and protection when we understand our role and function. 
I bring this up because even in Christian churches, there is a belief that states husband and wife do not complement one another, but that they are to be equals. And it is referred to as the egalitarian view of husband and wife, that the husband and wife are just complete equals. There's no headship in the home. Spiritually speaking, I agree that there is no distinction between male or female. That's what Paul said in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Spiritually speaking, in God's eyes, through the blood of Christ, each person is equal as a child of God. There's no preference. There's no, you know, People have closer access because they're any one of those titles. We're all equal in Christ. The first Peter three and Ephesians five and other passages like Colossians are speaking to the spiritual standing of believers. They are speaking to the rules of husbands and wives and that they share in every relationship that someone is ultimately responsible. That's what headship is. Someone is ultimately responsible for a person. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that one is, if you're the husband, yeah, I'm the, I'm the general. I'm the dominant person. When I speak, everyone will listen that is under my care. That's not what it means. What it means is this. If you are a husband, you have the responsibility of being responsible for everyone under your care. And it falls on you. So submission doesn't mean dominating. Submission means trust. It means responsibility. It means understanding the precious calling that we have. The man is ultimately responsible and he must submit to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, Christ is the head of every man. Okay, that's a lot of introduction. But it's critically important you understand those three things as we approach this text. Because it's there for us to see how it applies. Peter challenges three areas of the wife in this passage. That are to be present as they follow Christ. Her actions, her attitude, and her admiration. Her actions are to speak louder than words. Her attitude is to be her prettiest feature, and her admiration is more biblical than conventional. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, and they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Wives are to be submissive which means to willingly place themselves under the authority of their husbands. So that even if any of them, their husbands, are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe their chaste and respectful behavior. Now listen, the call is in the same way. That's what Peter says. In the same way, you wives... What is the same way? The end of chapter 2. Christ in suffering by submitting in a crazy situation to what? The will of God. 
in the same way as Christ did, submit. Having a spirit of deference is what Peter is talking about. Peter is not promising that every unbelieving spouse will be won over to salvation if their wife submits. But it does mean that the wife can have confidence that she is being faithful to God. But submitting here doesn't mean that the wife is to do everything that the husband says. That's not what submission means. That's often how we approach it in our culture, right? Kind of like the caveman cartoons where the husband comes in dragging his wife by her hair into the cave and say, okay, ugh, you make food, ugh, fire, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Like you're just going to do what I say because I said it and you have to. We laugh. But I can guarantee some of our older people here grew up in homes where that was the way it was. Because it was a cultural thing and it is still a cultural thing. It just looks different today. Listen, as we talked about concerning government, when a husband would ask or demand that his wife disobeys the will of God, she must not submit to his leadership. If an unbelieving husband or even a believing husband would ask their wife to disobey the will of God, they are not to submit. Her character is to be chaste. That's what verse 2 says. Chaste means pure. Respectful behavior means fearful conduct. Wives are to submit because they are first and foremost entrusting themselves to the will of God. Like Jesus did. Her trust in God's design for the family keeps her from usurping her role and position and by saying, I told you so. That sometimes happens. See, men, are, if you're a husband, are you perfect in your leadership 100% of the time? I know I'm not. I'm humbled by the responsibility and I am so disappointed in myself when I am not able to keep the task. But thankfully, God has given me a very gracious gift and a loving wife that doesn't follow around by every corner and saying, I'm going to let you make this decision, but I'm going to tell you when you're wrong. And Peter says, by your chaste and respectful behavior. See, what Peter is saying to these believing wives that have unbelieving husbands is, your behavior has a greater witness in, your, in their life than your words. You see that? Badgering or nagging will not win their husbands to the Lord. Being passive aggressive and leaving Bible tracts under their pillow isn't going to win them to the Lord. Having prayer times before meals and, and saying as the believing spouse, hey, can I pray and then you turn it into a revival service before you eat? That's not going to win them to the Lord. 
Peter's counsel to the wives is be a good wife. Theologian William Barclay referred to this verse and said, the silent preaching of a lovely wife is what is referred to here. See, you can preach loudly by your conduct and make a difference than by saying a bunch of words. So first, Peter says, your actions are to be chaste and respectful. Second, Peter says that your attitude is to be your prettiest feature. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, this was a big deal in the first century Roman world. The Romans were so consumed with the external things. In fact, archaeologists have discovered in, in digs and also looking at what was in the homes and all that kind of stuff. And, and also antiquity in the writings that women were known to color their hair all sorts of wild and crazy colors. To try to keep up an appearance of external beauty. And Peter adds to that through the wearing of rings and uh, gold jewelry and putting on dresses and braiding your hair. You know, these external things. They were focused on being attractive on the outside. That doesn't seem too far from our world today, right? So let me first share what this verse is not saying. Peter is not saying that wives are to not care for themselves externally. Listen, I'm glad that you all didn't roll in here like you haven't bathed in months. But some people have approached this passage and said, you can't ever look pretty on the outside. That's not what Peter is saying. What he is saying is, don't let your adornment merely be external. Don't let that only be what you focus on. Listen, the world we live in today, I mean, I I guess I should apologize before I say this, but I'm glad I'm not a woman. Like... And I want to qualify that. Not only, like, I don't want to have to give birth ever. That seems a terribly unpleasant experience. But as a concern, I'm just digging a hole. Um, But as it concerns what Peter is saying here, one of the reasons why I'm glad I'm not a woman is... There is immense pressure you face in this culture to be a certain way, to look a certain way. At last track, and this is from a couple years ago, the fashion and beautification market is a $20 billion a year industry. You can't go anywhere without them and them being the world impressing upon you that you have to look a certain way. 
I can't imagine the pressure to feel like you you got to fit some kind of mold. On top of that is the intense pressure put on women in our society to look a certain way, and it's promoted through social media. Right? If you're on social media and you're going through ads or videos or whatever, what is everyone trying to capture? The best photo or video where you look the perfect way with the background and the scenery. And what does that convey? Your life is together. And you try to get followers and likes and all that kind of stuff. I can't imagine the pressure. But the word of God says there is a greater beauty than what we see with the eyes. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The hidden person of the heart refers to the character of the person. And Peter says a character that is developed by the Holy Spirit in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important feature a spouse, a wife should have. Think of the amount of time that you spend on preparing yourselves to be seen. I don't know where Anna is right now, but if she hears about this, she's going to kill me. So she's watching this on the live stream, you know, if she's helping out somewhere. But my, my daughter is 15. She entered teenage years and all of the fun things with that, right? I mean, talk about pressure. Being a teenage girl in our society. I, I'm marveled at the amount of products that are available to take care of yourself. I walk into her bathroom and I'm like, what happened? And it's the pressure that you have to look a certain way and be a certain way and fit into a mold. And Peter says the most precious thing that you are to develop is your heart. Think about the time that you spend on preparing yourself to be seen. How much time do you spend on your heart? How much time do you spend preparing your heart? Now, there is a message to the men that are not married yet, too, in this room. Men, I get it. We are wired as physical beings. We're attracted with our eyes, right? We're very visually uh, focused. We see a beautiful person and we think, oh, they're beautiful. And we often attach that to how they look on the outside. But the most important quality you should look for in the woman that you seek to spend the rest of your life with is the hidden person of their heart. Do they know and love Jesus Christ? Is her character that of one who is trusting in the Lord and seeks to be more like him? Notice what Peter says. This quality is imperishable. Did you catch that? Verse 4, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable qualities. What does imperishable mean? They're not going to fade away. They're not going to get too old. They're not going to decay. The external adornment is perishable. 
Have you ever noticed that? That the people that were on the front pages of magazines and in movies 30 and 40 years ago are doing whatever they can to look the same way today. Seriously. But it doesn't work. So Peter says that her attitude is to be the prettiest feature that they have. And husbands, if you're married to a wife that loves Jesus Christ, I implore you to cultivate these character qualities in their lives. Fan the flame of the hidden person of their heart. Celebrate their faithfulness in following Jesus. Call it out to them in love and say, I thank God that you are this kind of person. Because there's this huge feeling and this weight of feeling, do I belong? Am I beloved? Am I beautiful? Wives need to hear that from their husbands. Verses 5 and 6. Their admiration is to be more biblical than conventional. And what is Peter saying here? Well, he, he, he takes us to an example. He says, For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Well, who's Sarah and Abraham? Well, Abraham was referred to as Father Abraham, the man that God began a covenant relationship with and said, through you, Abraham, I will use you to make a great nation, to be a blessing, and I will make your name famous. Abraham was married to Sarah. What do we know about the two of them? They did not have the perfect Marriage. At one point, Abraham and a famine goes down to Egypt. They go to Egypt. His wife is beautiful. Pharaoh's there. Abraham is afraid of his own life. He tells his wife, hey, if they ask me who you are, you're my sister, not my wife. I don't want them to kill me so that they can have you. We also know that Sarah was barren. Couldn't have children. And in her old age, the Lord visited them and said, when I come back to see you, you're going to have a child. And we know that Sarah struggled in her unbelief. But what was interesting is um, what Peter says here is that Sarah called her husband Lord. Now, just to be clear in the text, right, it's lowercase l. It's not capital L. It's, she's not equating Abraham to who God is. This title, Lord, is really a title of respect, like sir. She understood that her husband was uh, in a, a, a place, a, a role in her life to care for her, and she honored him. She may not have agreed with all the crazy decisions that her husband made, but she honored him. 
But what was interesting is the first time that we see in Scripture that she called her husband Lord is in Genesis 18:12, And this is when God said that she is going to have a baby in her old age. And what did she do? She laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's, we see that she referred to her husband in that way. But she was able to respect her husband and honor him. Even when he acted like a fool in Egypt and even with her maidservant, Hagar. That's a whole nother mess that was in their lives. Wives are to entrust themselves to God as they follow the example of godly women like Sarah. Peter says, when you follow her example and the example of the holy women from before, from the Old Testament, who hoped in God, they adorned themselves on the inside by being a person of character and submitting to the will of God in their life and submitting to their own husbands, then you're, then Sarah is really your example, your mother, because you are one of her children by example. This is a result of adopting a submissive attitude that you can be at, at peace knowing you are doing what God wants you to do, to believe that he is faithful to those who trust in him. So there's a lot to think about. Hey, Anna, did you hear anything I said about eight minutes ago? <sighs> She did. Okay. So there's a lot to think about. Lots of practical challenges. My prayer is that you see God's grace in the midst of these very practical truths and that we would be prayerful for the grace that we need to honor him. Husbands, do all that you can to affirm the internal adornment of your wife. Celebrate it. Thank God. You know, Valentine's Day is coming. Don't just focus on the outside. How about this? Husband challenge, write a note to your spouse, your wife, expressing your thankfulness to God for the inner qualities of godliness that they show to you. And I I don't need to know that you did it. I'm sure someone will tell me that. Hey, thanks for that. That was awesome. But but fan that flame. And, and, And secondly, wives, love Jesus and follow him. Let him be your focus. Know that God will honor you if you honor him. And if you're single this morning, see passages like these as ones to follow in your life. Because we've spoken a lot about how it can apply to where you are and what you are looking or hoping for. And husbands, you're not off the hook. Next week, we're going to look at what God says to you. But I pray that God will give us, all of us, the grace that we need for his glory. Let's pray.